0: section eight of the logic of vegetarianism by henry s salt this librivox recording is in the public domain section eight palliations and sophistries it is instructive to note the desperate shifts and subterfuges to which our antagonists have recourse when they find themselves face to face with the humanitarian impeachment of the slaughter-house if one-half of the popular prejudices were true it might be supposed that in the discussion of so fanciful and utopian a theory as vegetarianism it would be its supporters who would take refuge in metaphysical quibblings and sophistries while its opponents would hold sternly to the hard facts of life but no for when butchery is the theme we find the exact opposite to be the case and it is the flesh-eaters those level-headed deriders of the sentimental who suddenly become enamoured of the imaginary what might be and the hypothetical what would otherwise have been and are disposed to turn their attention to anything rather than to the unpalatable what is now when the apologists of any form of cruelty are reduced to the plea that it is no worse than some other barbarous habit the presumption is that they are in a very bad plight indeed yet we frequently hear it said that the fate of animals slaughtered for the table is no worse than that of other animals those perhaps that are used for purposes of draught or burden a quite pointless comparison because even if the statement be true the one act of injustice can obviously be no excuse for the other or it may be that the mortality of man himself and his liability to disease and accident are alleged in mysterious justification of his carnivorous habits the suffering of the animals being represented as brief and momentary in contrast with the pathetic human deathbed. an argument which reached its culminating point in mr w t stead's delightful assertion that of all kinds of death he would himself prefer the mode in which pigs are killed at chicago which mode as he incautiously let out he did not go to sea when he visited that city i do not think we need further discuss such remarkable preference it will be time enough to do so when we hear of mr stead's lamented self-immolation in the chicago pig shambles but it is said that domestic animals owe a deep debt of gratitude to mankind only to be repaid in the form of beef and mutton because by being brought within the peaceful fold of civilization they have been spared all the harrowing fears and anxieties of their wild natural life this however is a fallacy to which the great naturalists give no sort of sanction for it is obvious that though the life of a wild animal is liable to more sudden perils than that of our tame livestock, it is not on that account a less happy one but on the contrary is spent throughout in a manner more conducive to the highest health and happiness thus dr alfred russell wallace says the poet's picture of nature red in tooth and claw is a picture the evil of which is read into it by our imagination the reality being made up of full and happy lives usually terminated by the quickest and least painful of deaths and mr w h hudson i take it that in the lower animals misery can result from two causes only restraint and disease consequently that animals in a state of nature are not miserable they are not hindered or held back as to disease it is so rare in wild animals or in a large majority of cases so quickly proves fatal that compared with what we call disease in our own species it is practically non-existent the struggle for existence in so far as animals in a state of nature are concerned is a metaphorical struggle and the strife short and sharp which is so common in nature is not misery although it results in pain since it is pain that kills or is soon outlived let us proceed then to the great sophistical paradox that it is better for the animals themselves to be bred and slaughtered than not to be bred at all that most comfortable doctrine which of late years has been a veritable city of refuge or grand old umbrella to the conscientious flesh-eater under stress of the vegetarian bombardment hither flock the members of the learned professions academies and ethical societies and fortify their souls anew with the subtle metaphysical of the larder sophist of all the arguments for vegetarianism none in my opinion is so weak as the argument from humanity the pig has a stronger interest than any one in the demand for bacon VEGETARIAN. Indeed? And is that the view the pig himself takes of it? SOPHIST. It is the view I take of it, speaking in the interests of the pig. For where would the pig be if we did not eat pork? He would be non-existent, and he would be no pig at all. VEGETARIAN. And would he be any the worse for that? SOPHIST. Yes, for he would lose the joy of life, and not the pig alone but all animals that are bred for human food their death is the little price they necessarily pay for the inestimable boon of existence vegetarian now let me first point out to you that it is not only flesh-eating that would be justified by this argument vivisection pigeon-shooting slavery cannibalism any treatment whatsoever of animals or of mankind where they are specially bred for the purpose might be similarly shown to be a kindness do you really mean that sophist i assume of course that the life is a happy one and the death as painless as possible vegetarian neither of which conditions is in reality fulfilled for the wretched creatures that are bred and fed for the shambles have none of the true joys of life but from the first are mere animated beef pork and mutton while their death is nothing better than a prolonged and clumsy massacre. Sophist. But it need not be so. It is a mere question of police and proper supervision. It would be imperative on all those who confer life on animals to ensure absolute painlessness for the last moment. Vegetarian. It should be. So it seems that this remarkable kindness of yours is by your own showing not an actual but a hypothetical benefit. The animals fulfill their part of the compact by being killed and eaten, and you might fulfill your part by killing them painlessly. Only you don't. Are you serious in talking this stuff? Sophist. This stuff? let me remind you sir that i have the authority of such eminent philosophers as sir henry thompson mr leslie stephen professor d g ritchie and dr stanton coit do you call their academical reasoning stuff vegetarian what else can it be called for as a matter of fact quite apart from the conditions good or bad under which the animals live and die it is a pure fallacy to say that it is a kindness to bring them into existence. Sophist. How so if life is pleasant? Vegetarian. Because it is impossible to compare existence with non-existence. Existence may or may not be pleasant, but non-existence is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It is nothing at all. It cannot, therefore, be an advantage to be born though when once you are born the good and the evil are comparable the whole question is a postnatal not a prenatal one it begins at birth sophist well but supposing you were an animal would you not prefer vegetarian oh that is a very old question you will find it all in hansard it was asked by sir herbert maxwell when he defended the sport of pigeon shooting in the debates of eighteen eighty three He wanted to ask the Honourable Member whether, if he were a blue rock, he would rather accept life under the condition of his life being a short and happy one, and violently terminated, or whether he would reject life at all upon such terms. Sophist. Hear, hear! That is just what I say. Vegetarian. Then you had better think over Mr. W. E. Forster's reply, which puts the case in a nutshell he said that sir herbert maxwell made one very amusing appeal by asking him the member who introduced the bill to put himself in the position of a blue rock but this would be difficult for the position was not a blue rock in existence but a blue rock before it was born whereat the house laughed and sophistry was for the moment disconcerted but for the moment only for there have since sprung up many other professors of this metaphysic of the larder though none of them with the exception of dr stanton coit have had the hardihood to expound their theory in detail a wise reticence perhaps when it is seen how dr coit fared in his conscientious but humorless essay on the bringing of sentient beings into existence if the motive he opined that might produce the greatest number of the happiest cattle would be the eating of beef then beef-eating so far must be commended and while heretofore the motive has not been for the sake of cattle it is conceivable that if vegetarian convictions should spread much further love for cattle would if it not be psychologically incompatible blend with the love of beef in the minds of the opponents of vegetarianism with deeper insight new and higher motives may replace or supplement old ones and perpetuate but ennoble ancient practices the ox in a teacup be it observed may henceforth become the emblem of the concentrated humanity of the ethical societies but we frankly admit continues dr that it is a question whether the love of cattle intensified to the imaginative point of individual affection for each separate beast would not destroy the pleasure of eating beef and render this time-honoured custom psychologically impossible we surmise that bereaved affection at the death of a dear creature would destroy the flavour what a picture is conjured up by the sentence i have italicised the bereaved moralist knife and fork in hand swayed in different directions by the call of duty and the scruples of affection and then dr coit goes on to express a fear that mankind if they adopted vegetarianism might become less powerful in thought I respectfully submit that, in view of the arguments quoted, there is not the smallest possibility of that. The plea that animals might be killed painlessly is a very common one with flesh-eaters, but it must be pointed out that what might be can afford no exemption for moral responsibility for what is. By all means, let us reform the system of butchery as far as it can be reformed that is by the total abolition of those foul dens of torture known as private slaughter-houses and by the substitution of municipal abattoirs equipped with the best modern appliances and under efficient supervision for there is no doubt that the sum of animal suffering may thus be greatly lessened there will be no opposition from the vegetarian side to such reform as this indeed it is in a large measure through the personal efforts of vegetarians that the subject has attracted attention, whereas the very people who make this prospective improvement an excuse for their present flesh diet are seldom observed to be doing anything practical to carry it into effect. But when all is said and done, it remains true that the reform of the slaughterhouse is at best a palliative, a temporary measure which will mitigate but cannot possibly amend the horrors of butchery for it is but too evident that under our complex civilization when the town is so far aloof from the country and pastoralism can only be carried on in districts remote from the busy crowded centers it is impossible to transport and slaughter vast numbers of large and highly sensitive animals in a really humane manner more barbarous or less barbarous such slaughtering may undoubtedly be according to the methods employed but the humane slaughtering so much be praised of the sophist is an impossibility in fact and a contradiction in terms end of section 8